It's basketball time. And, uh, I wrote about this in my last letter is how much we miss Colin Sexton. Um, he has been a part of this young core and a part of this emerging culture. He almost was the one that started it for us a few years back. And so losing him was a huge blow to what we were doing. Um, and I think you can see now, we missed that ball handling. We missed that dynamic playmaking, that go get one, that scoring type. just to just pretty much just be able to help the guys and be around um, be around them and just give them that energy for me um, to them and just show them that like I'm here for them whether it's good or bad I'm, I'm rocking with them and uh, just being a, that extra coach on the sideline whenever they need something they feel like uh, what do you think I should have done here or uh, how do you feel about this play and just going out there and just and just seeing them play play the game and play the game that they love and play hard each and every night. Rubber Rim Job, Episode 7. One of my posting inspirations when I first jumped on the board, y'all, uh, the brother Michael Young, M. Young. Young, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing great, man. It's great to finally talk to you, man, because we've been going back and forth for well over a decade. Yeah, this brother right here. Like yeah. we, we've, had some, uh, we've had some spirited Twitter debates um, about the yeah. recent drafts and the direction we're going with this, man. And it's, we were talking just now, Rubber Rim Job, right before we started this. And I didn't tell this brother this yet, but so young, I was lurking on the board for a long time before I started posting, right? And there was a couple posters that I was like, oh, wait, no, that brother right there. Like, I would actually chop it up with him. And you were definitely on the top of that chart, man. You used to always come with it. You call people out for their takes and be like, yo, just come with some substance. And I used to always appreciate that about your profile. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate it, man. <laughs> you know what? Um, my, like, my screen name that I pretty much kept some version of it all this time is really from the first time I actually started posting on any of these sites when I was 23. Wow. <laughs> I've been on some type of message board for a very long time. I don't want to give my age out, but it's been a long time. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good transition. transition into our first question. Whenever we have our guests on a rubber rim job, young, know, we always ask them, you know, like, uh, your, your Cavs history, your Cavs fandom, where did that start? Um, and then 
what's your most, you know, your, your favorite Cavs memory? All right. Well, my first memory, my dad took me to see World Be Free. My brother. In the early 80s. So my Cavs fandom started with World Be Free. You know, back in those days, it was easy to get tickets. Yes, sir. And I remember going to see Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson and Twin Towers and seeing the Knicks. Man. And I was at – he surprised me one day. And I, I was at the – Cavs Celtics playoff game. It must it must have been like game three. It was either game. It was one of the, one of the early games. It was one of the early games. One of the Cavs home games in that series. Right. Yeah, we talking about ninety where where Bo- uh, birds back went out and everything. No, this is the eighties, man. This is this is George Carl. This Got is the, this is the year when they started two and nineteen and went to the playoffs. <laughs> I would so that's how actually how old I am when I was a little kid there, I, and I, I remember that we had really great seats. Okay. And it was the game where they didn't call a goal ten against Phil Hubbard. Okay. And they had a chance to win game three, and they lost game three in a really close game. They wound up losing the series, wound up getting swept. I believe it was game three. And that was my earliest, those were my earliest cast memories. And I became a, a diehard fan after that. Okay, okay. Bird with 34, the Cavs with 23 seconds to play. Need a basket. World against Dennis Johnson. 12 in the game. Bag's going to try a three, an air ball. Stolen by Hubbard. Into West. No. Outside the world with three seconds to play. DJ with a block. And that's the ball game. Boston wins it in a wild finish as Hugh Hollins and Ed Rush just let them play down the stretch. The final score. Boston 117, the Cavs 115. We'll be back right after we take. Uh, and even you know, there, that was before the Price Harper Nance years, man. So I've been just a diehard man, yes, just living and dying with this basketball team, man, since the, since the mid '80s. So that's pretty awesome. So you actually get to see some parallels to like you were. Your fandom really caught fire and took off as the Embry hire and that whole era got started. And we actually got to watch, you know, the the Price, the Harper, the Doherty, all that kind of stuff be built. Do you see any parallels from that first uh, era that resulted in, you know, those 90s teams running in Jordan and everything and what we're what we're currently building, what we're seeing take off now? Well, I would say. The parallels are they were able to get a group of young players. Well, obviously, these guys are a little bit younger, but they're actually coming into their own around the same time. So it's all, the, all these guys now came out when they were fresh, after real freshmen. And while all those guys in the 80s, were, yeah, in the 80s, you know, came out when they were juniors and seniors. Yes, sir. But actually, they're acting together around the same time in terms of their ages. Because those, those Price Harper Nance teams, well, the Price Harper Doherty teams, they were really good by their second year. Right. Right. And personality-wise, they're all just very humble. They're not really flashy. Except, well, Harper was flashy his, his rookie year, <laughs> but they're 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 mainly about basketball. They they play good team ball. Right. They like each other. Right. So those are I see some parallels in that way. This is not like the even though Doherty was the number one pick in the draft. This is not like LeBron coming in. This is not like Luka Doncic. This is not just any of those like. Herald, super heralded players because when the Cavs got the first pick, when they actually bought the first pick, right. 
with like Cash and like Roy Henson. They traded Roy Henson and Cash for the number one pick to the Sixers. That was considered a down year in the draft, right. really, uh, to have the number one pick because those, because Doherty came out sandwiched in between Ewing, Olajuwon, and uh, David Robinson got drafted the year after. So then he was like considered like the worst choice right, right. of all those years of like Hall of Fame centers. And, and also 86 was the year where all those guys got hit with all the cocaine and all the drug problems. Right, right. Right. So, and, uh, yeah, got all those guys. Like, In I believe Harper was that year, right? And Price in the second round. And they had Hot Rod the year before, but he couldn't play. He couldn't actually play. We talking about so they got the guys at the same time. Yeah, right? his number two was Lynn Bias. We know that. We know that tragedy. Um, Chris Washburn, yeah. Chuck Person, number four out of Auburn. Kenny the Skywalker uh, out of Kentucky went up to the Knicks. <laughs> went up to the Knicks and basically was a uh, Kevin Knox before Kevin Knox. William, uh, yeah, William yep. Beffer. And couldn't play. Yeah, yeah, William Beffer, who I actually remember this brother. I had his hoops card like eighty nine ninety. He played for the Pistons, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Roy Tarpley coming out of Michigan, who I I, I remember yeah. Roy Tarpley, and then the Cavs selected Ryan Harper number eight out of Miami University right. of Ohio. Yes, sir. Roy Tarpley was really good. He was uh, another guy just ravaged by drug problems. Yeah. And some of those guys, some of those other guys just couldn't play. William Beverage just couldn't play. <laughs> Ron Harper. Brad he was a Sellers. guy that, yeah, he was a guy that 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 Kendall Lewis. He would say he was tall and that's all. And that was William Beverage. <laughs> so the '86 draft was not like oh we fallen over ourselves. It wasn't Anthony Bennett's draft. The what was that? The 12 or so. Um, but it it, it was not. Uh, yeah. The clear runaway. Uh, we got AD. At the yeah, top it was not. Yeah, it was not considered the uh, the level of the top of the draft of previous years. Got it. Got you it. Know? And to piggyback off of what you just said, the funny thing about Ron Harper being the flashy one on those teams, um, I just finished this uh, Scottie Pippen book. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not. I, I listened to it on Audible. <clears throat> I was worried. I was like, oh man, this brother gonna be narrating. I ain't trying to hear that. But actually. <laughs> <laughs> Pippen went and got somebody that has some emotion to their voice. So it was a it was a pretty easy read. And what he told about that whole second um that second bull stint that ninety-five through uh, ninety-eight was Ron Harper was quintessentially the glue of that team. You know, like uh you always had Phil Jackson doing his thing with his mind stuff, but Ron Harper was the one right. behind the scenes, you know? Like um Pippen had beef uh, basically every year he was there with Jerry Cross and everybody else on the team. Uh, Harper, he found ways to bring people back to the table, keep the conversation going. He he babysat uh, uh, Dennis Rodman for him. And I was like, man, this brother, they had such, to me, they had such a bad read on this per, on this brother's, um, his personality, his makeup, and his morality and everything like that when they shipped him off. Um, but that's for another thing. Right. It was, just think about this. Ron Harper averaged about 23 points a game as a rookie. Right. And, you know, the Cavs weren't that good. Lenny Wilkins convinced him to take a back seat and have them focus on Brad Doherty. Right. And they took off that year, that second year. And, you know, a lot of, that will be hard for a lot of players. Cavaliers coach Lenny Wilkins sees the improvement too. Ron understands uh, what it is to, to play in a team concept because the players around him are as good as he is and we feed off one another. If we have five guys out there really playing well and doing the job, then we become much more effective as a team. Ron understands that and is willing to do those things that make us a team, uh, make us function within a team concept.
I mean, we have, we've been going on and on about Colin Sexton's role <laughs> on the Cavs for going on the fourth year. People still, he's been hurt and people are still talking about it. But one thing I try to get across to people is just because one guy can put up points and score does not mean that's the best option for that team to win. Right. And I keep saying, because I remember Ron Harper taking a back seat and having, because the best chance for the Cavs to win was, was Doherty. And then, you know, Mark Price blew up his second year too. But that was the way they were going to win. And they did. I think that's that team started out 43 and 12 or something. Something crazy that second year. Right. Just insane that second year before, before eventually trading for Larry Nance. That's that's kind of things that always shape my view of basketball. And you know, I've had some other like basketball mentors and you know people I would discuss the game with. And one thing I've continuously realized and saw is that just because you have these players on these teams, it's not because they like they're just putting up numbers on a bad team. It's like what is their ultimate role on a good team? Right, right. And and Ron Harper was a quintessential example of that. The Cavs. You know, he blew out his knee with the Clippers. He kind of reinvented himself as, like, this defensive guard, quasi, like, combo guard kind of guy for the, the Bulls and the Lakers. And, you know, that's, you know, they, they, you know, credit to him for, I think he got, like, five rings. Yeah, oh, no, he definitely, um, after the Bulls, he went to Lakers and got those next two rings, you're right. And so right. Um, Pippen talked about in his book how Phil Jackson leaned on him. Like, you always have, uh, to speak to what you just spoke to, these are humans, right? Like, it's easy to just look at the stats and look at, because I was getting ready to throw some stats at you, but then you took it somewhere. Um, I think we're, I think we're really on the same wavelength. Because if anybody looked at his stat, his stat line from 86, 87 rookie year, he had 22.9. He was, you know, like, whatever his efficiency wasn't. But then that very next year, he fell back to 15.4. Speaking to what you you talked about, Lenny getting in his ear, convincing him that for the betterment of the team, do this. His efficiency, it went up. He went from 46 to 52 in um, scoring efficiency and stuff. Um, And it's... Those are the kind of signs that when you see that, uh, what like what was Wayne Embry doing? Like, how are you not paying attention here? By all intents and purposes, was making the ultimate sacrifice. Young, everybody is banking on Kobe and JBB being able to convey to Sexton. I'm a little worried about that. You know, I don't like to, and we're just we're we're armchair psychologists, right? Right. But what you just spoke about, hey, this brother is scoring this and he's doing this, you know. Um, outside the scope of winning basketball, but what's going to happen if you ask him to do this instead? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, but look at what happened earlier in the year. You know, he was doing this, he was doing that. Yeah, but we weren't, we we didn't look like how we looked once he went down. And so just recently there's been a development with him changing agents and everything like that. But everybody is so sure that we're just going to be like, oh, he's such a team guy, he's going to be able to do this and do that. I'm not so convinced. And I think that with a couple days leading up to this deadline, Young, I, you know, you know, without being, you know, X-Files conspiracy theorists, I think you have yeah. to read the tea leaves and see that. And I don't think it's an Embry trying to be proactive with Harper situation. If you say, OK, you know, if this brother's switching agents and he's looking to maximize this and maximize that, I'm not so sure he, you know, like going down the line, he's going to be on board with taking this reduced role that actually helps for the betterment. Well, the only thing I haven't heard a lot about but what I have heard is while, you know, the guys think he's a little bit strange because he's like 100% basketball. <laughs> man. He doesn't have a whole lot of outside hobbies. Right. And, and while they do get frustrated with his play sometimes, they all like him. They all like him, yeah. They like, all, they all, love, like all, the guys, all the guys really like him. Right, right. 
And, you know, as you said, man, uh, the money is so big now. You know, guys can have, they want to win, but they have to, you know, the agents or somebody else tries to get, gets in their ear and tells them, look, you know, you still have to get your money. Right, right. <sighs> Rod, at last, I find you. What am I doing here, Jerry? I feel like I'm five years late for the prom. Come on, come with me. Hey, nobody gives a damn about me being here. We're going to go downstairs and we're going to walk through this lobby. Because I want every media guy, every player's rep, everybody to see you for what you are. The best kept secret in the NFL. The most commanding wide receiver in the game. You are fast, fierce, wildly charismatic. You are the man. You are the man. You ready? Let's go. Let's walk. And that has to factor in, right? Like with with this right. Ron, with yeah. this Ron Harper thing um, back then, with the way the salary cap was structured, you know, late '80s going into the right. '90s. Pippen talked about it ad nauseum. You had two slots for your top guys to get like two million uh, or one point five. Then you had right. like five or six slots where people were getting, you know. Uh, nine hundred thousand. Then you had the the guys at the bottom who had to go sell cars and bag groceries, um, who were, you know, not where those other guys were. That's that's a big difference from uh, guys that are earning forty million a year compared to the, the minimum. You know, the guys on the bottom of the thing. So there's, uh, there's a big gap. There's a big scat. You know, in the middle there where Sexton's like, I could literally double my earning if I look out for self. As opposed to back then, Rod Harper was like, "Oh, it'd be another hundred thousand or so. He can buy me a couple of dinners. I'm willing to take a back seat." Right, uh, because you know numbers equal money in the yeah, leagues. Right, right, right. His biggest selling point going in, into any type of contract negotiation like, "Well, you know, my last full year, I averaged 24 points a game." Right. Agents use those numbers to compare them against other guys, and all those other guys are, you know, you know, making. $3 million a year. And obviously the Cavs don't want to pay that. But everything, I, every, like I said, everything I've heard about him, you know, as a person, he's such a grinder. Right. He does, you know, have a burning desire to get better and win that I'm sure if, if they could come to like a contract, if they, if they solve the contract, you're not going to have to worry about it. Right, right. Some guys get paid. You have to worry about, okay, what's going to happen to these guys? Like some guys I would have never paid. There's my like Lance Stevenson. I'm never, I'm never paying Lance Stevenson, <laughs> right? <laughs> never pay Dion. You know, you know, you Dion never pay right. Dion later, right? Right. I was never worried about them paying Tristan Thompson because I know the guy was going to show up every, every game, Punch every day. Right. And give you what he had. I'm not if he whatever contract amount Colin Sexton gets, I don't think that's ever going to change his play and how he wants to win within that team structure. It's just a matter of you know whether the expectations get so big because he's not going to have the same role, and so the, that outside pressure comes in. If he's if he gets like twenty five, twenty eight million dollars a year, right. and he's like a seventeen, eighteen. You know, points per game score. You know, is that noise going to get to him? Even though the Cavs are good, so that is a question you have to ask. You know, what is he like? Twenty two? He's still a very young guy. Yeah, he's twenty two, twenty three. Let's speak to that though, real quick, young, because I actually I agree with this one hundred percent. You said something earlier too that I really like, and that is uh, through your basketball mentors, your personal experience, everything. You've always seen it through a lens of team first, like winning, everything like that, as opposed to the business, you know, just being uh, uh, totally about the business side. We had the luxury of being able to do that because that's not where our income is coming from, right? I'm the same way. Right. So um, one of the things that I think is dope that I'm noticing right now, Young, is they're, they're trying to make a shift. Like if you even just look at the all-star roster, how Draymond got named a reserve and um, 
a couple of these brothers that I'm like, mm. but then if if you're just looking at their numbers, like if I listen to NBA radio on Sirius all the time, and I'm like, man, I wish they would just stop talking about numbers, like the Isolas and the, all these type of people. All they talk about is numbers, right? Um, but then you'll get uh, Eddie Johnson on, and he's like, it's not just the numbers, you know. Like you gotta watch these player, these dudes impact, like how they impact the game, how they impact winning. And I feel like the pendulum is starting to swing a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I know for a fact that Draymond has literature in his in his contract that, that you know, he gets bonuses and things like that for, you know, all-star selections. But he's smart enough, and I, I hope, you know, Clutch is smart enough as well to uh, layer in winning incentives as opposed to just number incentives. And I feel like we're starting to see that throughout the league with both recognition for all stars and things like that. Um, but also, you know, people keeping the conversation based on winning and how you impact winning as opposed to getting numbers. That would be a way that Kobe and uh, JBB could bridge that gap that we, we could see in the near future for Colin Sexton. Have, have you noticed that or have do you feel like that's something that's going on in regard to, um, I guess you could say the theory of how they're approaching these guys monetizing. Uh, yeah, I would say it's, it's part of the, upside of analytics because take Evan Mobley. Okay. Evan Mobley doesn't have incredible like number slashes, right? Points, rebounds, assists. They're they're not just they're not incredible. But you can analytically look at him and also kind of uh quantify his impact on the team. That's what people have done. That's why people look at him, he can have like a fifteen, six and three game and people can just see, you know, how how great of an impact he has on the game and winning. And then use a bunch of these analytics stats, these metrics to, to back it up. Like how many um, I agree. Uh, his uh, contesting shots or the percentage of uh, a team shoot at the rim. You know, all these other his plus minus, his net rating. Right. Right. You can see the impact beyond just the raw numbers. And I think that's that's taking a uh, that's also you know um, in coaching in the teams and how all these teams have analytics departments and coach, a lot of coaches have embraced them. And so you have teams. So you don't have to have these huge numbers for Draymond Green. Everybody kind of knows now how impactful he is to the Golden State Warriors. People know how impactful Darius Garland is to the Cavs. Right. right. And people, all these teams know. All these all these other opposing coaches know he's the engine that drives them, regardless of what the numbers are. From that saying, so like we're we're seeing that on a larger scale with the Rubio injury, right? Um, leading right. up to that, like you saw his impact on things, and sometimes it wasn't in the numbers because he had some horrible shooting nights. There was um, there were some nights yeah. where he was like, "Rubio, please stop shooting." But you saw his impact on, like he had Jetty playing maximum Jetty. You know what I'm saying? Like he he probably should be individually credited with rehabbing Kevin Love for us this year. And some of that stuff showed up in the aesthetics of the raw numbers. But when you dug into the analytics right. and you saw his impact on the other four guys that were on the court with him, you're like, yo, this dude is totally worth the 17 mil. And he's somebody that we really should be looking to extending and stuff. So I, I agree with that 100%. To, to speak to that, I don't know if you've – have you ever seen Open Gym? It's a YouTube series for the Raptors online. Uh, I've not seen the Raptors. Okay, no. okay. If you ever get a chance, just hop on YouTube. It, I think they got like ten seasons now. So like they've they've gone through all the whole Casey era, they, all the times where we was right. uh, they were LeBronto and everything like that. They they've got them all every year. They got the championship season, but then they also had that um, you know last year when they were displaced for half the year 
and then uh, for the whole season, and then they got this year. And I'm on there looking at it, and Masai Ujiri has always been uh, a GM wet dream for me. Now, but now our GM is starting to catch up to him in regard to you, you see his vision starting to come to light and everything. Uh, Masai Ujiri for organizational and how he runs things. I've always been like, man, I, I love the way this dude is doing this. Um, and so on that show, you actually see him like he pulls OG Ananobi into his office and he talks to him. Um, he's like, hey, you know, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk numbers and everything like that. But, you know, uh, Coach Nurse got, gave me these raw numbers for your hustle and your impact. And, that was, and he's like, and I, I get it. I see what you're doing. So just wanted to, you know, give you a primer that when we talk contract, this is going to be the numbers we go by. I was like, I appreciate that. And I, I wonder if more GMs and more organizations you know, are, are in their players' ears basically saying, like, don't just look at the points and the rebounds and the assists. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it gets the OG Ananobis and the uh, the uh, Powells and those kind of guys to buy into their role and contribute and not just worry about their raw numbers. And I, I really appreciate the way they were doing that organizationally on that show. Yeah, I think that's a growing trend in the league. I, I'm, I'll, I'll be shocked if teams like Miami doesn't do that, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I, you know, I, I'll be shocked if, if, if the Cavs don't do that. Even though they couldn't come up with a deal with Colin Sexton, there may be some compromise this summer in terms of like years and you know, op, you know, player options or something like that. Okay. Um, basically, you know, you know, I, I know I also listen to other podcasts, and it, there's always like there's this uh, assumption that the Cavs really don't want to keep him or they don't really value him. I was like, I think they value him quite a bit. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And I think they want to, if they can't have just a serious upgrade, I think they want to keep him, but just not at a number that's going to make things rough in case they have to trade him or make changes you know, you know, down the road. But I think they value him, and we can see how they miss a guy like him. Sure. Right? Sure. You know, he may not be like the answer or the final piece. Uh, regardless of what you think of him or how good he is, you can see that this guy can be a valuable player on a good team. I agree. And I think that's what they value. It doesn't matter what, what kind of number you put on that in terms of contract. Sure. I'll say this, Young. I, <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%. I'll piggyback off that. I was one of the brothers or one of the people online. And I, I can't remember what that one dude's name is that we, we always um, going back and forth. He's like a Colin Sexton extremist. Um, but I, Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, Hiram, that's right, yeah. I'm one of them brothers that, for a long time, like when uh, when that draft first happened, um, and I saw mm -hmm. how he was playing with some blinders on and stuff in that first year, and then that next season when we had the opportunity to grab uh, who I saw as being one of the top two playmakers that was coming out um, between Garland and Morant, John Morant, I was like, okay, uh, we, don't have to ha we don't have to do this Kevin Johnson, Mark Price thing all over again. You know, we don't have to do... Steph Curry, Monte Ellis all over again. Like we can actually maximize and, and get the value and everything like that. Like by, you know, turning this guy into an asset now. As I saw the two of them growing, learning, trying to figure out how to play with each other, I was like, wait, no, these these brothers actually like each other, you know? Like you can tell that they weren't like, yeah. I gotta rip your head off kind of thing. Like you can tell that they personally like each other what you spoke about like everybody on the team garland and sexton are not beefing like they they out there they got their own little thing going on where they got this little special handshake and stuff on the bench uh, in that charlotte game and everything like that um and kobe from his own mouth has said in this in the, the most recent video thing he's like he's essential to what we're doing like he laid he helped us lay and establish the foundation of how we wanted to approach working hard and 
you know, locking in and, you know, just doing the work every single day. I appreciate that. I do hope uh, without projecting anything onto this recent news with the agency change and everything like that. I do hope that they have a very strong um, read on what his his true intentions are and how he wants to approach it. But I, I'm like you, I'm cautiously optimistic because I think he would be perfect in that role if, if that's something he buys into. Right. There's always a danger of, I think we mentioned it before, of uh, someone, you know, getting a guy there, convincing him that, you know, you, you deserve this amount of money. I'm not against any player going and getting their money. But, I mean, this is we're reaching a point where this is less about basketball and fun, and it's going to be about business, right? Right. You know, the Cavs are going to have leverage, right? And unfortunately, he got hurt. The Cavs are going to do what every other team in the league is going to do. They're going to look and see who has cap room and who can actually pay him and offer him an offer sheet. And they may modify, like, whatever numbers they had, you know, going into this season. That number might go down. You kind of hope that things don't get too contentious and personal because I don't, I don't know how many people will actually know this, but a lot of times teams don't want to go to restricted free agency with a player. It's because you get the contract extension is this is how much you love me. That's that. It's, it's the how much you love me extension. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it's the one that shows the guy on the rookie contract how much you value them as a player. Because you know, you know, you know, when uh, rookies get to a team, when young players get to a team, every team does the we're a family and you're part of an organization and all other stuff and. And, you know, getting a guy that extension is always is part of that rhetoric and team building that teams do, right. that NBA franchises do. So I just, I just, like I said, man, I just hope that things don't get too contentious and they're able to work something out. Fortunately, Rich Paul has a good working relationship with the Cavs. Uh, so I don't expect him to take the qualifying offer and ride this out because I don't think that will be good for anybody. Right, right. So, yeah, it just remains to be seen because I'm, I'm not – I can't recall another situation where a guy that a team wants to keep gets hurt going into his final rookie rookie year, right? Uh, rookie year, and they still have to try to work out a deal going going into restricted free agency. I can't remember a situation like it. I will say um, I can't remember one either. The closest thing to it was uh, Ben Gordon up in Chicago. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I think it might have been a knee or as a wrist or something like that. It, it was it was something where. It, he was he was a restricted free agent, and um, they had just drafted Derrick Rose, and so his role was evolving. You know what I'm saying? Like he went from sharing the backcourt with uh, Kirk Heinrich out of out of Kansas to he was he was the primary guy at first. Then Rose's rookie year, if you recall that first series that they had, the Bulls and the Celtics, where Rose was him and Rondo was going toe to toe with triple doubles and everything like that. But the leading scorer yeah. for that series was Ben Gordon, right? Um, and he, right. That was his that was his year where he was expecting to get paid that summer. Um, and I, I don't believe, I don't know I don't remember the timeline of how they did it, but I know that he ended up playing on the qualifying offer and then taking like a four for fifty five or something like that. Like a, a it was it was not a good deal that he took when he moved over to Detroit. But I definitely remember that. Uh, recently in regard to somebody being on a show me kind of deal. Let me let me say this real quick, young, because actually this is a really good chance for us to transition and show a little love to one of the uh, uh, Cavs historical icons. Uh, one of our foundational pieces, uh, Bill Fitch, 1932 to 2022. Uh, I want to say rest in having a, a Bill Fitch um, out of 
Davenport, Iowa. Uh, he became uh, he was he was the first coaching hire, right? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, he was the first coach. Right. Um, and so in Pluto's book that we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, he specifically spoke about how for that 1976 Miracle at Richfield season, um, he had two guys. He had Campy Russell, who's a rookie out of Michigan, who you know came in as a 20 point scorer. I think he was a first round lottery pick too. And then he had a guy coming off an injury in Austin Carr, who's a third or four year vet at that point in time. He was the man. He was best player in college basketball at Notre Dame. But he had a little bit of, you know, he had some nagging knee things that was starting to slow him down and made him have to adjust his game. Fitch went to both of them brothers at the end of the 75 or end of the 75 season going into 76 and said, look, you know, I need y'all to balance this. I need y'all to balance this out. Like I, you know, like I can't remember who the other guys like Snyder and um, Clemens, and he was, he needed more defense in that starting lineup in order to balance things out. And he asked two primary scorers who was still gonna get they, you know, they time and they buckets and everything up um, to be good with playing that role. And team as a whole, I distinctly remember Nate Thurman being traded for halfway through that year, and he didn't think twice about it because. Other dudes on the team were already making those types of sacrifices. What are you most proud of, Coach, in terms of that season and the way those guys came together? Seven guys in double figures. It really was a family. Well, I think they, they, they were a good example for what teamwork is really all about. And they played both ends of the floor. And there was no jealousy about how many minutes one was playing. And, you know, if I had a, a bench player go in and start playing like he was a first first turn, I left him out there. Did, right. And uh, the starters were such close friends and everything. Nobody criticized. Uh, they didn't get mad at each other. They were coaching each other. They probably coached themselves more than I did. And uh, that part in the family and, and uh, the way that they competed and the hardships that we went through to get there, uh, I think that uh, it all stands out. Funny, we start off this this conversation talking about the parallels to that, the Richfield, the the Wilkins and um, Embry team and how they took off and stuff. But there's a challenge right now that we could look back further in history while showing some love to Bill Fitch uh, at those miracle teams and actually say those those teams all had brothers who made sacrifices as well. Uh, right, because I'm pretty sure those guys are tired of losing. Right. right. <laughs> he said in, in that book, uh, we keep referencing, I'm going to share a link for this on the episode. He talked about how, you know, Fitch had won everywhere he went before then. And, you know, he went from a Mac team to a Big Ten team. Everywhere he's going, he's taking these teams to the tournament and stuff. In the first two years, man, he said that, that brother was, uh, he was pretty irritable. You know, he's, he wasn't given the resources in order to turn the winners around. But he he had him in practice. He would be in practice for three and four hours, barking at these dudes like, "Look, like we gonna we gonna get it right," you know. Like he's he had like a military background to him and everything. Um, so yeah. eventually, when the time came and he was like, "I need to put on my psychologist hat and just chat with these dudes and sell them on these roles," uh, we ended up seeing the miracle of Richfield take off. So that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, one through line of all like the successful coaches in Cleveland, where most of them they've all had those good player relationships. Yes, sir. Right. They were able to get through to these guys. And um, it's like a, like Mike Fratello. It's like um, they, I think one year they started 0-7. And then he went to the guys and look, we can either, you know, slow the pace down to a crawl and try to win, or we can lose playing like the style you guys like to play. 
Right. He convinced that you know that that uh, Brandon Fields Mills team. <laughs> I was like, this I was is what like, we had to do was to that win. Ninety five, ninety six team. I remember that. I remember that season like it was yesterday. It was either ninety. Yeah. It was either ninety four, ninety five, or ninety five, ninety six that you're talking about. Because um, I remember right. that year. There was one specific game, Young, that I remember. It stands out in my brain. It was a, a battle with the Pacers, man, and they was going back and forth. Terrell Brandon and uh, Travis Best. And I think Best hit a shot to almost win the game, and then we had like three or four seconds. It was Joe Tate on the call. I'm watching this on uh, Fox Sports Ohio at the time. I think we had Gukas and somebody else doing the um, the the TV commentary. Brandon went the length of the court and and shot this runner about the free throw line that that got us up out of there that game. Brandon coming to the fourth court. Brandon with three, with two on the run. Good! He beat the buzzer. Cavs win. Cavs win. 97-96 as Terrell Brandon drove it to the basket and scored to beat the Pacers by one. Oh my! But I remember that team. Most of the games was in the 70s and 80s because of how Fratello approached it. And, and as you said, you yeah. know, spoke to them brothers and talked, talked them into playing a different style of game. Yeah, and it was all good, wound up being good for, for their careers, right? Right. Terrell Brandon became an all-star, right? Tyrone Hill. Um, both, I mean, the Cavs didn't keep Bobby Fields and Chris Mills, but those guys got nice contracts on, on other teams. They did. I remember that. Uh, Fields to the Hornets. Fields to the Hornets, Mills, Either went to the Knicks or he ended up on the Warriors yeah. later. Um, I want to say Chris Mills went to the Knicks and then got traded with John Starks over to the Warriors when they traded for Latrell Sprewell. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. He was a part of that Sprewell trade along with John Starks. Man, right. yeah, no, you're, you're right. Uh, he helped them brothers carve out careers and and ultimately raise their value by having them win as a team. Because that team, that was supposed to be, that was by all intents and purposes, Young, that was supposed to be like a teardown era. Um, but you had the czar who was used to, you know, uh, he master tactician, always had those Atlanta teams competing, even though they they probably shouldn't have um, outside of uh, Neek and everything. But you, yeah. you're right. He pushed the right buttons. He knew how to communicate. How are you feeling about JBB? We haven't had a chance to talk about, you know, we've talked about him at nauseam on the show, but I haven't had a chance to engage with you much online about him. How are you feeling about that, brother? I think he's doing a great job. Man. Yes, sir. Um, he's, he's been able to connect with these guys, you know, the young guys and the veterans. So, it's, you know, he had that reputation of being one of those type of coaches because, you know, no matter what happened, he kept getting hired, right? He right. kept being the interim. He kept being like the guy to come in after the original guy failed. Right. But he was never able to, you know, to, to stick anywhere. I think his biggest success has been what was going on with Kevin Love. Okay. Right. I was never one of those people who thought that, you know, Kevin Love had to go, they had to buy him out, they had to get him out of here, they had to punish him because, you know, when you, when you hear like the team talk about him, they all like Kevin Love. I understood that Kevin Love, I called him, he was in semi-retirement, right? <laughs> Those first two years, he was in semi-retirement after signing a contract extension. <laughs> after going to four finals and winning the championship, he's playing with these young guys. And I don't know what happened that, that first year LeBron left. And it, it seemed like um, there was some kind of miscommunication between the, the rest of the veterans. And they just kind of jumped ship and fired Ty Lue. Right. He was hurt all the time. But he never had a bad relationship with JB. 
Right. He never had a bad relationship with his teammates. And he went to him with like the perfect plan and role for him on the team. He told him if, you know, you, you're going to bring you off the bench behind Evan Mobley and, and Jared Allen. And basically he gets to do, he gets to be featured. He gets right. to, <laughs> he gets to shoot like he did in, in Minnesota. And all he told JB was if I earn the minutes, he gets to play. But they're not going to do him like John Wall or any of these guys just kind of sit him down and not play him. Then they brought in Rubio, right. and he, he has hope. This is, this is what it looks like when guys look like they – the right, team has a chance right, to win. Right, right. And it, it looked like a malcontent, but it was actually despair. It was like, yo, how do I go from perennially challenging to make the finals to knowing we don't even have a shot and that organizationally we're not really trying to? So I, I get that. Like, there's a psychology to right. that, too, you know? Um, right. I agree with that 100%. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're good, brother. My, my strongest coaching quality that I give JBB credit for is what you just spoke about. And that was the interpersonal relationships, the communication, the being able to sell a vision. Um, you know, we got two brothers in roles that are doing that right now. You know, like Kobe had been, even when he was in bat, like super embattled, like at the end of last year, when they had the pitchforks out and everything like that. And they was like, look, man, you know, like before he won that, um, got the lottery luck that resulted in Mobley. Uh, he, he was embattled a little bit because they was like, look, look what happened with KPJ. Look what happened with this drumming thing, like yada, yada, yada. But yeah. he kept talking about, and the irony to that is the vision that he kept selling and talking about, just a stroke of luck, like one uh, lottery luck. It all was like, oh, we see this picture clear, right? I love how uh, JBB has been consistent on that as a coach as well. You know, like you can tell that the two of them are lockstep in regard to having that bigger vision. Um, but where Kobe's had to learn, and he's only just now starting to make progress on the PR side of how to communicate that and keep, you know, keeping, you know, things at bay, the Jason Lloyds and the, you know, the Richfield uh, Cav raised at bay. Um, JBB has always been really capable at that. You know, there was we, we talked about this on one of the episodes. There was a show all up in all the smoke with Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes. Uh, and they brought JBB on along with uh, David Fisdale to talk about uh, some of the uh, social climate things that were going on during the Black Lives Matter and, you know, Kenosha, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this brother, like everybody on there was, you know, kiki in and shits and giggles and all this kind of stuff. But JBB, he kept bringing the show back to substantive. And I really appreciated it about him because I was like, no, I... I can tell this brother actually, you know, not only sees the big picture, but he's able to uh, drift through some of the white noise and some of the junk and, and bring it back to the main thing. And I was like, I can only imagine in the locker room on a practice court, you know, you know, seven days a week, he's able to do that and communicate with these guys and keep them, keep them bought in. So, um, and, and maybe that speaks to what you talked about being a crisis manager, always, you know, being the guy that organizations choose to, uh, take over for you know like some uh, up unrest and things like that um but i'm I'm really grateful that he's here and laying a strong foundation that these dudes can all buy into with uh, his clear communication styles and everything right uh it seemed like he went to these guys he looked at the team and you know and you know went over with his, with his staff all right what is the best role <laughs> for these guys? He was like, because, you know, nobody in Ricky Rubio's career has gone to him in the NBA and said, yeah, we want you to be Fever Ricky. Right, right. And actually, like, trying <laughs> right. to like, score like you're on a Spanish team. Right, right. 
Yeah, but that's what this team needed, you know. And you know, Teddy Osmond was horrible last year. Man, you can't, you can't even mince words. You can't sugarcoat. He was terrible last year. But it seemed like once they got Ricky Rubio and they got Evan Mobley and they moved Kevin Love to the bench, they probably kind of redefined his role to what he's good at. And he's not trying to do a whole. But when they were healthy, he was not trying to do pick and roll. He, it was less of these wild forays to the rim. They kind of, you know, shrunk his role into what he could be, what he could Simple do best. Right. And he was able to thrive. Right. He did that with he did it with guys up and down the roster. Right, right. And I, mean, I, he, I think he asked more of the guards. I think he, you know, he pushed Darius Garland. I think I think Garland admit, admits that that you know JB was always pushing him to to be more and do more. And he was able to get Colin Sexton. You know, before Colin Sexton got hurt, you know, even though his usage rates was real high, he was not the focal point of what what they were doing before, and he seemed to be fine with it. So that I mean, that goes to what we talked about before. That you got to put that on JB. There's no issues. You never heard any. There's no. There's no like rumors or whispers about this guy being unhappy about his role. There's none of that. This year, none of it. I agree with that 100. percent So we're on board with that. The, I would like to add, and I've I've said this pretty consistently. Um, young brother, 42 years old. Um, there still needs to be growth on a tactical side, like some of the out of timeout and some of the you know some of this half court yeah. basketball. Well, we I'm fearful that uh, as he locks into these series, right? He's been outpointed by a few coaches uh, on a tactical side but he knows the buttons to press whenever he's dealing with a, a healthy roster. Um, so we're going to, we're going to need to, and hope to see growth from him on that side. Um, but to speak to what you just said about Garland being thrown to the fire. And now we, what we see coming out of it um, is his, you know, his first all-star selection, which just got a, awarded this week as a reserve. Um, but you see the conduit for the team. Like the, the offense goes as this guy uh, has been making decisions and how he approaches things now. So we're hoping that come playoff time, we're able to lean on that to make up for some of the tactical disadvantages we may have. Garland being selected as an all-star was something. I don't know if we've mixed it up on Garland online much on Twitter, you and I. Um, and I know usually we're talking prep to pros and we're talking about guys' roles and stuff. How do you feel about Garland where he's at now? You know, I didn't necessarily, you know, expect him to be this good, you know, this fast. But when I saw him as a rookie, I, you know, I, I, I will let me roll it back a little bit. After the Cavs, you know, won a championship, I just couldn't watch college basketball anymore. <laughs> and plus, you know, my work schedule changed. So I went from being an absolute draft Nick okay. to never watching college basketball. So I had to, I think the last two guys I really I watched a lot were Trey Young and Colin Sexton. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about Darius Garland. So I was surprised about how good of a passer he was. Right. And so I thought there was like a roadmap for him to be really good in terms of like, you know, being able to hit, a, being able to shoot deep threes, being able to use that three point shot to, you know, to, to set up the rest of his game, right. be able to get in the lane and use floaters and, the, you know, use that uh, deep threat and uh, passing to be a really effective player. And it's like, wow, that, that's really just came, <laughs> came all the way to fruition by his third year. Right. So I'm not sure. You know, if he's ever going to be the level of like the like you know of John Morant or or like Pete Chris Paul, but they have a guy that if you get him some help in terms of the backcourt, could be a guy that's going to just terrorize teams um, just for years. Because if you can't key on him, then he's able to run free and do all the all the 
the passing and the shooting right. that makes him so good. Because that's that I think that's why, you know, having Colin Hurt was such a big disappointment and why they're been, why they've been so aggressive looking for some kind of wing or guard or combo guard to come in at the trade deadline just so they give him some help. Because if you can't key on him, then he's just going to be a nightmare. Let me ask this. It's not really a baited question. I didn't bring you on here to, to hit you with the baited ones. But it's it's something that's been discussed a lot on the board. Do you see Garland making this all-star ascension with Sexton healthy on the court? Or, did, or do you think that this is going to happen no matter what? Like, how, how do you feel about that? Because there's a lot of people that's like, this only happened as a result of that. Um, do you do you think that this was just, this is a natural progression as he was developing, getting stronger and more as a more as a pro or do you think that that actually played a part in that a little bit uh i think it did play a part but this is also just his natural progression okay, okay. right you think the things he's doing now you saw them starting to develop like last year especially near the end of the year right so this is not like his skill set is not completely unsurprising but just at the level and how much better everything has gotten this year it's almost like well i think you know sex and injury kind of pushed him into the fire I think he's responded. Yeah, I don't think he's probably an all-star. I think the team may be a little bit better. Right. Overall, the conflict have been healthy. But, yeah, I don't know if he would have been an all-star. I think I think they probably just would have given it to uh, Jared Allen. We spoke a second ago. You know, you were like, yo, because of my availability, I am really watch college ball like that. Um, yeah. The irony is, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been – uh, love my pro hoops and everything, but college basketball, like I'm, that's my heart beats. I love watching these dudes. I watch them from the high school level, college, then going to pros. And I was watching um, that year that you talk about with Trey Young and Colin, and um, you know they had that battle down there that you know Gilbert and the team flew down there to see uh, where Alabama ended up beating Oklahoma. They shut down Trey Young, um, but then that very next year, um, because I'm here in Nashville and I watched Garland all throughout uh, his four years at. Brentwood Christian Academy here. Um, I was like, this dude is going to be dope. I didn't like that he chose Vanderbilt, even though at the time they had, um, uh, I think they were Bryce Drew was the coach for his year. Um, but I was like, ah, I think that he might do make some noise in the SEC. Man, by the time that injury popped up, he looked like he was going to have a Trey Young like impact. Like he had them dudes undefeated. They just went out to uh, USC. Uh, flew out to USC, a USC that had uh, um, Kevin Porter Jr. and um, Mobley's older brother. Like they, the team wasn't stack stacked, but nobody else on Vanderbilt. There was no reason why Darius Garland should have won that game. Um, so I knew going into the draft, like this dude had that type of potential. I was like, if he can get stronger, and he keeps playing with that type of, you know, there's three levels to his scoring and the way that he uses his scoring to open up the pass. I was hopeful that he could right. get here, um, but I like you. I didn't expect him to get here this quickly. But it's it's you know I'm passionate about it. Like just a couple days ago, I was uh, up here at Assembly Gym for Vanderbilt, and I watched Scotty Pippen's son, Scotty Pippen Jr., uh, help them upset LSU a couple days ago. They have that team is not stacked. Like they, he, Scotty Pippen Jr. and a couple Euro dudes um, playing for Jerry Stackhouse at Vanderbilt. Um, and they've swept Georgia this year. They barely lost to Kentucky, and they upset uh, LSU. And I'm like, I'm telling people now, Young, uh, 
I know the dude is only six two or six three. He's this he's this combo guard that everybody's like. He's not really a point guard. He's not this. He's not that. The same way Ron Harper Jr. over at uh, Rutgers. Everybody's like he's but yeah, but he's not this. He's not that. Scottie Pippen Jr. when he gets to the league, even if he's like a second round pick, he's gonna be that dude that people were like, you know, like this year's Chris Duarte or you know, like what like how did he slip through this and do that? Because the dude is a he's got the pedigree just like Garland of an NBA father. And these dudes know how to approach it. They know how to grow if you give them a chance to grow at the role. I totally went off on a tangent just now and brought Vanderbilt and college ball in this. But um, I saw this from Garland, and I was hopeful that he could get there, and I was not expecting it. Yeah, I know. I, I never saw – I never seen him play. And, man, he would play like four games at Vanderbilt. So I would never seen him play. Okay. But I was – but, you know, reading the scouting reports, they kind of downplayed his passing ability. I was like, how did – and, you know, people called him like a, you know, he would get this, rep- somehow he got this reputation as like a okay. short shooting guard. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> you saw as a rookie, he like, wow, this guy can really pass the ball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just a matter of him kind of figuring out how to, how to play point guard in the league. But, yeah, and no, yeah no. I was like, how did they downplay this? How did they downplay his passing so much? I, I, would, I, I, I didn't understand. I would definitely say his, yeah, they, they painted him like he was like a C.J. McCollum clone or something. I would definitely say that his scoring – was more potent on, on on the on the younger level, um, but then when he got to that McDonald's All American game, uh, and I'm I'm totally doing this off the top of my brain, young. So I don't. I'm pretty sure he had an off night. He might have been like 0 for five or 0 for six or something scoring wise, but he had like ten assists. He led like his team upset the other team based off of him just being a playmaker. And I was watching him just like I did uh, that that year. Kyrie, Brandon Knight, all them dudes were still in this. They were in this cluster. We didn't know who was going to be the best point guard out of that group yet, right? And right. When we got to that McDonald's All-American game, it ended up being Kyrie and Brandon Knight together on the same backcourt. I was like, how are we going to do this? Like, I wanted to see them dudes go against each other, um, and that didn't happen. In, in Garland's case, uh, uh, he wasn't in the same class as Morant. Morant was a year earlier, but... I, he was very clearly the best playmaker on that McDonald's All-American court for me, like just watching him. And I was like, if a couple jumpers had fell for him, he would have got game MVP. But his playmaking and stuff I saw already. So um, I don't I think some of that is lazy scouting, but probably also, yeah. also young. You know, it was the first five games of his college thing. And he probably didn't have a feel yet for that strength, the physicality and some of the speed of the college game yet. Um, so I was it, it probably would have came if that injury didn't happen, but we're lucky because of it. He would not have been he'd be a New York Nick right now, at least. You know what I'm saying? Like if he had a full season. Yeah. Um, so I, I really think that we got lucky from that. I just wanna say, you know, I I don't get to talk a lot a whole lot of like basketball history with, <laughs> with people who so funny you talk about the McDonald's All American game watching them. You know, I had a similar experience uh at the world game. Watching um, when I first saw Carl Anthony Towns and Jaleel Okafor. Okafor was the number one prospect going in, you know, going in their into their freshman year in in college. Yep. And I saw Carl Anthony Towns. I was like, this guy's better. He's better. Like it's not even close. <laughs> I remember that. I was like, what are y'all? I was like, what are y'all watching? This I guy. That. I was like, this guy. I think this guy's great. And Okafor was like, I was like, all right, he's, he's okay, but. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't remember. I don't remember yeah. the stats for him, but I do remember that game. And I do remember yeah. people were saying because um, Cat had just committed the to Kentucky. Yeah, the hoop summit. Yeah, Cat had just committed to Kentucky. Okafor had just he had already for the whole season he had already been committed to Duke. 
And so they was like, just, you know, slurping up Coach K, like, oh, this is the best pro- big man prospect. I was like, I don't see that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was like, to me, Okafer looked like a little bit taller uh, Sullinger. And Cat, yeah, like, his game was wide. Yeah. I'm like, no, this dude's game is wide open. Like, he actually, he looked comfortable facing up. And I was like, no, this dude, like, um, don't mistake him for that Kentucky big man that was off the bench, the, the shot blocker uh, a year or two before. I can't remember his name. He totally got drafted as a project, but uh, I was like, "That's not the same guy," you know. Like that, like this dude going to Kentucky, he can do more, and it's it's going to be up to Calipari to to show him and unlock him. But good call. That's that's a good call. I totally forgot about that matchup in that. Yeah, I mean, Towns was like shooting jumpers and blocking <laughs> shots and running the floor. I'm like, what? Let's let's use somebody that. was lying about. Yeah. <laughs> let's use that to tighten this up because actually, um, we we're gonna. Come back to the Cavs, and then we're going to uh, shut it down because I don't want to over-talk you and use up all your Sunday. Thank you for this. Um, in the same vein, JBB's, he he had the courage and the foresight to actually put this big lineup on the floor, right? Like, people were like, oh, what, right. why the hell did we just pay Laurie Markin and, like, he's this or that? And Young, the day we acquired him, I was like, no, no, no. I was like, y'all go look at Detlef Shrimp and Tom Chambers. Like, like r- remember with them big yeah. dudes that actually had some face-up game. You know, if you think about, like, the Detlef Shrimp, dude was like a 20-point scorer at Dallas and uh, a couple other places before. The Seattle, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, the Seattle with, with Kemp. Yeah. Kemp. Se- Seattle with Kemp and then in, 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 with the Pacers, too. In both places, he played as a starting small forward that was like, I'll, I'll play this role, you know, like I'll help y'all space this floor. And if need be, you know, like if y'all need a focal point in, in some possessions, Laura was starting to get into that role. But I just I wanted to speak to what you just said about b- people being able to see guys in roles and saying, you know, no, there's a possibility that we can see this dude thriving in this other thing, because that is essentially what cat look, you know, everything that you say. But then when he got to college, Calipari put the shackles back on him and was like, just block shots, you know? Like, just you know, yeah. just, just do this, just do that. I let all my my world-class guards do all that. I, I was like, nah. And and to their credit, the pro scouts and stuff was like, yeah, we don't think so either. We, like, we know this cat has more in his bag. This isn't Michael Olawa candy. Like, let's go. Right. That's, that's a good yeah. – did you – when we first acquired Laurie, did you see this playing out with the lineup shaking out the way it has? Or were you like, we still need a starting small forward? Like, we got to keep making moves here. Yeah, I thought – well, I, I didn't think they were going to get a small forward this year, but I thought they needed a small forward, mainly because I watched Evan Mobley in Summer League. Right. I had watched a lot of his – I watched this is a year I watched a lot of film breakdowns of guys. Okay, okay. Right. And even though I really liked him – I didn't think he was going to be ready to play. <laughs> like, at all. I thought, and I was like, because I was like, well, they got to start marketing, right? When they got him. Because at the moment, you can't start and they expect to win games. So that's, you expect that's ludicrous. to be the starting power for it, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think, yeah, I didn't think he's going to be ready to play starter minutes and have a huge role. And also didn't think they will put Isaac Okoro to the bench. Right. right. This is the fifth, you know, he's the fifth pick in the draft. And they're going to move him to the bench his second his second year, and I was like, yeah, I was like, wow, that's that, I, that's another testament to JB going to guys. Right, right. Well, so they they got all these grinders who just you know, all these gym rats who just 
going to the gym and, and work on their games and get better, and they just want to win. There's not a whole lot of ego. You know, you ever heard a peep out of Isaac Okoro? Every role they've even you know, of him, he's done it. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't do that with, you know, if you had Darius Miles and Ricky Davis. Darius Miles, Ricky <laughs> Davis, and Jermaine Jones. Yep, yep, that's funny. Yeah, so I was, I was kind of surprised. And this, this works because Allen and Mobley are so mobile, and Mobley is such a, a unique he, yeah. I won't call him a freak, but Well, we call him on the board we call him Unicorn. I don't know where it first started, but long before anybody else in the press started calling him Unicorn. Yeah, he's he's that and they're able to you know, Markin is a pretty good athlete and they have to switch and and they they try they keep him out of certain positions. Uh, you know, they don't have that you know, the first couple games of the year they have him trying to Fight through ball screens right, right, right. <laughs> against like Desmond Dane, and I was like, "Well, I'll, well, how is this going to work?" And then they, you know, they kind of make some adjustments, and yep. and one thing that shocked me was the game against the Clippers, and he was giving Paul George all kinds of problems. All right, wait a minute, we might have something here. Okay, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm searching my mental Rolodex, and I don't remember that matchup per se, but. So that was the moment that you was like, wait a minute, now this brother, what I've seen uh, that I really like is they almost do like a cross matchup thing. So like by all intents and purposes on D, you see Evan Mobley playing, well, when they were healthy and that, and that lineup was, was rolling along like a well-oiled machine. You saw Mobley playing more three and more, you know, like uh, whether we were playing the um, the one, two, two, the box and one, whatever. Mobley was always that defensive versatile guy. And then uh, Markinen would flip flop on offense and he'd be the floor spacing three. So I like that. And I like the way that they were attacking teams with it because we, it almost put us in a position to match up hunt, right? Like it would be like, okay, um, we're going to shield the, our defensive vulnerabilities, but on the offensive end, there's nowhere for you to hide. Like we got these, three seven-footers with three different skill sets, and then we got these, you know, these guards that know how to set everybody up. So, um, no, it's, it's, it's been right. beautiful to watch. For me, I still think there's growth to be had from marketing in that role. Like, everybody's like, okay, yeah, but this is only a, a, a um, experiment. I don't think so. I think there's still um, – we definitely could use that uh, wing defender who's a little bit more versatile with better length than an Okoro to, right. to do what he's got to do. Um, we definitely could still use that, but I don't see that guy becoming the starter. I see that guy, you know, positionally, like, you know, there's some names that were rumored with Young. When that trade happened a couple of days ago with uh, Covington and Powell going down to the Clippers, man, I was like, I wish one of them dudes was coming this way because that's perfectly like, or even Torian Prince coming back. But I, I know Minnesota is actually um, pushing uh, for the playoffs up there. But that's the kind of guy that we – easily could slot in as a sixth or seventh, seventh or eighth guy that just plays positional uh, matchups and stuff that we need. But I, I'm good with marking and being the starting three going into this playoffs and everything. Yeah, I think next year is going to be, well, of course it's offseason, but really next year is going to be like the big thing for him because he was kind of thrust into this role. Right. And you kind of look at his weaknesses, you know, his handle is not very good when, you know, trying to change direction. He has a weak base, and so besides being able to push off the block, he you know he doesn't have a whole lot of list like standing still. Right. He needs like he you know he gets a runway and, it's, and he's dunking on everybody. <laughs> and, he has yammed on some people this so, year, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. That's the Chicago people said that. Yeah, he's going to do that on occasion. That, that yoke right? dunk. I, I didn't see that coming until he finished it. And I was like, wow. 
he gets another like off season to maybe like strengthen his base, kind of work on some handles and what he would need to do to kind of really truly punish switches. Right. Right. Because he doesn't need a whole lot. I agree. Like, like one one dribble pull up, you know, maybe being able to uh you know spin dribble into a jump shot, a turnaround jumper, uh maybe like a little baby hook. I agree. Doesn't need a whole lot. And right. We're talking about young, we're talking about a guy who for that whole developmental year at Arizona, um, Sean Miller, yeah. they just had him as a face up big who was just spacing the floor. They didn't have him do any of the po like I um there was a I don't think it was Stanley Johnson. Uh, there was somebody that was there that was like kind of like in a coral build who he was like the post guy. He was like a PJ Tucker kind of guy. But then Lori Markinen wasn't asked to do that at that level. So everything stateside that he had done leading up to becoming a pro had been a face up, like basically a seven foot shooting guard. So there's still growth yeah. that can come there. You know, like I, I, I agree with you 100 percent in him strengthening his core a little bit. Um, and finding his role. And, and with this week right here, Young, trade deadline is everything. If somebody just said, hey, I'm going to let you get on a 10-minute call with Kobe Altman, give him a list or talk to him about how to approach this, what is M. Young's advice for Kobe Altman going into this pivotal week that can determine how far we go? Uh, I would tell Kobe, um, you need help. You need to make a move. But now is not the time to make the quote-unquote B move. Okay. Right. Okay. There's nobody. I don't think there's anybody available that we know of that's going to be able to make a difference in a playoff series against like the conference's best teams, like a a healthy Nets, Bucks, Heat. You're not. You're, there's nobody available yet. But you do need a guy to come in because Rubio and Sexton are hurt, and maybe you can get a guy that's going to be a more of a long-term piece. What I can say is they're interested in guys whose names have not really come up yet. Right. So there's there's going to be, and if you, once they ever come out, or maybe I could just tell folks after the deadline, there's some surprising guys, at least one name that people are like, wow, they're just missing that guy. And and, it, and they're, they're more long-term pieces. So people talking about trading a first-round pick for Eric Gordon, I wouldn't do that. Right. I'm not even trying to trade a first-round pick for Karis LeVert. I don't think he's that good. I would tell Kobe, get the best deal you can for... Rubio's contract, those two high second round picks, and whatever lower players on the roster. Get the best help you can and convince Dan Gilbert to pay the luxury tax. They could use the disabled player exception because they really possibly, they probably need two players so, at the deadline. My brother, the one place I'm, I'm on board with you and you had me over here. You can't see me right now. I was over here nodding the whole way. And then we got to that. <laughs> <laughs> we got to that one part at the end, and maybe because I spend way too much time talking to some of these analytic dudes in these in these forums, but to start that clock right now this year on that luxury, because you know once it's started, it yeah. it compounds, right? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I kind of talked about this a little bit on Twitter. Uh, Dan Gilbert is not worth forty billion, <laughs> so he shouldn't care he's about the repeater tax, yeah. and neither should we. That's 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 a whole because his. I'll say, man, I've been uh, roasting Dan Gilbert since he bought the team. His only saving grace is him spending money. Okay, okay. So I, I can understand the the logic of not wanting to pay the start the tax early on this type of team, but. You know, I think if they can get some guys going to stick around for a while, then it may be worth it. Okay. It might be worth it. might be worth it, right? Because 
I don't know, man. You know what? I, I may just I may just DM you at least the name that I heard. It might be a little surprise. Okay. I'm not gonna put it out there yet because we're gonna have to. Um, okay. And I want to. I'm not drop this. Say it publicly. <laughs> I want to. I want to drop this seed in the ground and and let this thing be something that we come back to. I think we're gonna have. A okay. whole, I think you and I are gonna have a whole episode where we go at it about Gilbert because I may be on the total opposite. Uh, spectrum um, on this but yeah. we you know we'll we'll talk about this i don't i don't want us to to broach that right now but just put this in your put this feather in your cap and i'm sure you you know do your research and stuff so we can we may have to bring on a moderator where we can have an episode um because I, I love to do even with the mistakes and everything but we're gonna we're gonna revisit this okay okay but i appreciate that thank you that's that's, that's juicy on on this yeah. from the standpoint of thursday at four o'clock Young is gonna be like, look, y'all. I'm telling you, like I had, like I, I knew this name, that name, and there's, there's, there's some whispers of that on, on the uh, Cavs blogosphere and Twitter sphere. So I totally yeah. understand that. I like approaching this with your, from your standpoint. My focus is use the bullets that you have in your, like, please, let's not go through another deadline where you know we got the, you know, the Wally Zerbiak, uh, uh. Ext- not extension. What was that? It was like some type of exception. There was a Anton Jameson exception. Like all these exceptions got, you know, you know, we were standing there with the bullet in the chamber safety off and we just didn't pull the trigger. Right. I don't want to do that. Right. But I do believe that this first round pick has value from our standpoint of, we still got holes to fill. Um, I believe right. that uh, Rubio, his, his contract, those two first round picks, and some of the tertiary guys, like you said, should be on the table. But I also believe, and and this I guess is a good uh, way to pass you back the buck before we close out, that that Sexton thing is not settled. There's I think there's value in you know that before we have to broach that this summer. Um, and I believe that right. if you could fill that role with a more ideal you know, length and versatility and defense and everything like that. It's not just efficient scoring. I think you should consider it. So that's the only caveat to, uh, I think you and I are 90% on board with how to approach the deadline, but I'm actually open to exploring that. The rest of the guys not so open too. like, I'm actually not super gung ho about a guy like an Okoro, unless there's like an, the, that perfect, like that DeJounte Murray kind of acquisition that like, okay, this guy is actually a core piece that, you know, but um, other than that, I would say that kind of guy is untouchable. I would say that um, uh, the, the stories or uh, the whispers that they are, that they are willing to trade that first round pick. I would say those are true. Yes, sir. Um, I would say, I would also say, I don't think there's a name that's been mentioned that's worth trading Colin Sexton for, and um, I think I think there's some when, when I you know when I bring up not wanting to trade the first round pick, it's not so much keeping that guy to draft the player. I would rather at least at the deadline, not the deadline, but on on draft day, have one of those bullets. I agree. To go quote unquote big game hunting. I agree. For a much better player that's available that's going to be available at the deadline, you know, next week. Right. I agree. So that's my rationale. That's my main rationale for not wanting to trade a first round pick. Now, also, if you're going to make a big trade in the future, you're going to need cheap young talent. And if you look at the roster, you know, as much as I love, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge Dean Wade fan. I'm probably the biggest Dean Wade fan. I love Dean Wade. We, you and I are on the same page on that. I actually really love the way this dude approaches the game. 
Okay, but now, yeah, we we Dean Wayne fan club, right? <laughs> but some of these other guys, you know, um, it, it remains to be seen how good Okora is. It remains to be seen if Lamar Steelman can make a shot outside of 15 feet. <laughs> uh, Dylan Winter looks like he's, you know, heading to be able to use his passport, right? Right. So there's really, I don't, I'm, you, you know, um, you may like Laurie Marketing, but there's still a need for another wing. There's still going to be a need for like cheap role players that you can develop. So that is, I, I'm not gung ho about just trading all these first round picks. You got enough young players. I'm like, no, look at Memphis. Memphis Man. has bucket loads of young players. They have players that other teams are going to want when they want to make a trade. I'm not sure how much value Lamar Stevens or Dean Wade or Dylan Weller has in a trade unless it's just to throw in to make the numbers work, right? right? So there's always going to be a need to develop players. They still need more wings, right? Because, you know, Osmond's not going to be here um, after his contract is up, I don't think. So they're still going to have holes. You got a lot of talent at the top of the roster, but you can't just ignore – you know, all those role players and expect to, you know, get those type of guys all the time with second round picks and undrafted players and stuff like that. I'd rather have options and uh, as many options that I have. So to increase my margin for error, that's all I'm trying to say in terms of like the, whether to trade or to keep the first round pick. My brother, my brother, a lot of meat on this bone today. I appreciate right. you making time to hop on with us, man. No, man, it's a long time coming, way overdue. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. And one of those days, you might, you know, you might tell that story publicly that you kind of told us that one time on the on the message board. We're not going to get too much into it, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, uh, cat, catting around Akron, brother, catting around Akron. A whole lot of history. Yeah, but we we are we always have been like kindred spirits, man. So I always appreciate that. This is Joe Tate. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs>